Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. When you pick up a child from school and ask how their day was, one of the things they most often mention is whether they liked what was offered for school lunch. The importance of school meals in students' experiences is not sufficiently reflected in how school nutrition staff are supported and compensated, however. In June 2022, the School Nutrition Association of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Healthy School Meals for All Coalition conducted the first statewide survey of the Wisconsin school nutrition workforce. This survey finds that more than half of Wisconsin schools experience significant challenges finding and hiring school food service workers. When school nutrition departments can't fill vacancies or retain employees, this leads to a decline in meal quality and worsening nutritional inequities. This and other results of the survey have been published in this new report called Hungry for Good Jobs, the State of the School Nutrition Workforce in Wisconsin. Joining me to talk about this report and local and national efforts to improve school nutrition programs and food equity are two guests. Dr. Jennifer Gaddis is an associate professor in the Department of Civil Society and Community Studies at UW-Madison and the author of The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools. Thanks for coming back to A Public Affair. Jennifer, welcome. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Doug. And we also have with us Michael Gasper, who's the director of school nutrition for the Holman School District and was twice president of the School Nutrition Association of Wisconsin. He's also a member of the board of directors of the National School Nutrition Association. Welcome to A Public Affair, Mike. Glad to be here, Douglas. Uh, Thanks for having me. Sure, we're glad to have you both, and we're happy to dive into this important issue in this new report. I want to welcome listeners as well. We'd love for you to join our conversation. If you have a question for my guests or a story to share about school nutrition experiences, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. Jennifer, we'll start with you and just tell us a little bit about this report, the groups that produced it, and what your aims for publishing it are. Sure. So this was a really collaborative effort um, from people across the state of Wisconsin, not only um, the group that Mike um, has been a part of previously, the School Nutrition Association of Wisconsin, but also the Healthy School Meals for All Wisconsin Coalition that involves um, over 80 different groups across the state of Wisconsin. So originally this group really formed because um, as many of your listeners may remember, um, school meals were actually free to all students for about two years during the pandemic. And so when it became clear that the US federal government was going to return to having school meals be free, reduced price or paid um, as in pre-pandemic times, um, a lot of statewide advocacy um, not only in Wisconsin, but in states across um, the United States, uh, really started to bubble up. And here in Wisconsin, our coalition included um, 
really wonderful school nutrition directors such as Mike, um, who said, you know, we are having issues um, in our program, not only as we anticipate this return to this old model of not being able to serve um, all students free of charge, but also um, with issues of recruitment and retention that um, were certainly present before the pandemic, but have become worsened um, during this time uh, by some of the instability of the pandemic that was certainly not affecting only school nutrition programs, but you know, it impacted like the economy more broadly. So we decided to do a statewide study that would really um, try to profile not only the current state of the school nutrition workforce, but some of the kinds of inequities and challenges that anecdotally people thought were true, but that we really wanted to gather more robust data on. So for example, um, Mike um, and myself, and actually two of our elected officials, Francesca Hong and um, Christina Shelton, who's the representative from Green Bay, um, along with a really wonderful graduate student, Sarah Trongone from the sociology department, and Bobby Guyette, who's the current president of um, SNA Wisconsin, um, we formed a um, subgroup of our Healthy School Meals for All coalition that was really focused on these issues of labor, wages, and compensation. And we worked um, with um, all of our members to kind of think through um, what is the information that we want to gather and how can we best um, really get input from people across the state. So we were able to get um, input from over 25% of schools across the state of Wisconsin. And we also did several listening sessions or focus groups with school nutrition directors as well as managers and hourly staff for this report. And we wanted to be able to show not only what wages and benefit levels and things like that look like, um, but also some of the challenges that I think people don't always realize. So sometimes people might think of this as like a low wage occupation, but they might not know that most people who work in school nutrition programs are only employed for nine months out of the year and that most of the jobs are part time. We found in our survey that four out of five hourly positions um, are part time. So those kinds of things make it to where uh, people who work in school nutrition profession um, actually have a much lower annual take-home pay. So we wanted to be able to show some of those things, um, but also investigate some of the kinds of things that um, we kind of suspected to be true. Um, for example, like the wage gap between um, school nutrition workers who are almost um, almost all women, it's over 90% women who work in this industry versus um, custodial workers, for instance, who are mostly men. So those are some of the things we were hoping to do in this report, as well as to document some of the places um, that we would call high road employers. So places where they have unusually high wages or um, benefit levels so that we can sort of understand um, why are there some districts that are able to do a little bit better within the current system, but also what are the limits of our current system um, so that you know even those that are kind of doing the best in the current circumstances, um, what are they still struggling with? Great. I'd like to go back to that um, in, a, in a little bit here, that difference between what you called the high road employers and the districts that are able to uh, attract or pay um, cafeteria and school lunch employees, school nutrition employees a little bit better. But first, um, Mike, we'll turn to you to give us a little bit more concrete picture of what average wages and compensation are like for school nutrition workers. Um, you can talk certainly about uh, your experience there in Holman up near La Crosse, but also your knowledge of uh, how the situation is more broadly across the state. Yeah, I mean, I think throughout the state, you're going to see kind of a wide range of uh, salaries, uh, you know, anywhere from the $14 an hour um, range to probably close to 20 depending on where you go. I know Madison recently increased their wages. I think it was $5 an hour, actually. So they're actually now considered a good wage. And in fact, I believe it's the only district 
in the state of Wisconsin that would be classified as paying a good wage to those school nutrition employees. Um, and you have everything in between there. You have some districts that um, will offer benefits to part-time people. Um, the unfortunate part about that is generally those employees have to shoulder um, the majority of those costs, um, which is very difficult when you're only working four or five hours a day, nine months out of the year, like Jennifer uh, referred to. Um, so uh, I think, you know, when, when you look at school nutrition, there's a lot of technicality to it. School nutrition um, employees are required to, to get continuing education credits every year, um, anywhere from six to 12. And um, I believe we're one of the only support services departments that, that, that face that requirement. So um, I think it uh, is a, uh, a profession that perhaps hasn't been given um, its due necessarily as far as, as, as what it really entails. It seems simple to put lunch on the table at home. However, when you look at what we're faced with maintaining costs, uh, maintaining certain diet re uh, restrictions, we have to meet certain levels. Um, it can be quite complicated. Jennifer, Mike uh, just mentioned uh, Madison and the pay there, and uh, you have a little bit more local context for us to share, and then we can talk about those differences across the state and how they happen. Yeah, so um, in Madison, I think some listeners um, maybe will remember that at the start of last school year, there was a fair amount of um, negative press and I think community frustration around the beginning rollouts of school meals at the start of the school year. And one of the real issues um, was the district was struggling um, with recruitment and retention of staff. So um, there were kind of two parallel things. One, there was an internal study within the district looking at equity across um, some of the different professions within the school system, but there was also this real community effort that I think was um, mobilized pretty quickly in response to some of the conditions at the beginning of the school year. Um, I remember myself and a, a few other people um, launched a petition um, calling on the school board to increase wages by $5 an hour for all hourly employees. Um, specifically, actually, we recommended that um, the Board of Education um, earmark <laughs> that was fun so that it wouldn't come directly out of school nutrition budget, but that part didn't happen. But they did, um, at a school board meeting, um, vote to increase the wages by $5 an hour for all hourly employees. And, um, you know, in just a couple matters in a matter of a couple days um i think it was over 700 people um like filled out that petition and we brought that to the school board so it was something that i think we got a fair amount of community support for and um, I think it's really because people recognize um, not only that people who are working to feed and nourish and educate our children deserve to earn a living wage themselves, but also that we really can't have the kind of food that we would like to see in our schools without investing in employees. And so um, I think that was something that um, the school board and the district really recognized that there needed to be um, a, a real investment um, in those workers. And um, they did do this base wage increase of $5 an hour. And then I I think one other thing that happened in Madison that to me is really important is that there started to be a lot more communication with the Madison Teachers Inc., um, which is the teachers union um, here in town, about um, why it really matters um, to be supporting um, 
the like the rights and the needs of school nutrition workers, even if they aren't actually members of the teachers union. So when the teachers union was um, really doing their organizing work to push the school district for an 8% cost of living increase instead of what the district had originally proposed, which I think was somewhere more like um, maybe 3%, they uh, really pushed for that cost of living um, to be extended, not just to teachers, but to all employees in the district. So um, that ultimately happened. And because of that $5 um, per hour base wage increase and the 8% cost of living, the starting wage for MMSD school nutrition employees is now over $21 an hour. So it's much higher um, than some of the other areas of the state, um, which is great. Um, but we also have to really um, keep in mind that cost of living in Madison is much higher than a lot of other areas of the state. So um, is it great that we have that um, as a, a number to point to in the report? as literally the singular district in the entire state that we would say is offering like good wages to starting school nutrition employees. Yeah, it's great that we you know even have one district in the state that we could say that about. But um, when we factor in cost of living in Madison, I think um, it's still challenging. So you know some of the things that are good is that um, in Madison um, you can get access to benefits um, after working four hours per day. So that's something that not a lot of um, jobs in like the restaurant industry, for instance, would necessarily provide. Um, But there are real challenges. I think for some people, um, the lack of summer hours is really challenging. So I think in our report, when we looked at um, what sort of the average take home pay would be, um, you know, it's really challenging for a a lot of people, a part time worker earning the median starting wage um, in Wisconsin, which would be $14 and 70 cents would take home only about $10,500 per year working a 20 hour week, nine month schedule. And even a full time worker um, at that same um, average um, pay um, would be, um, you know, earning less than $30,000 a year. So I think, um, you know, it's it's challenging for people when they're deciding to work in school nutrition. And in Madison, you know, people have options. I think that's true in a lot of communities. But one thing that we tried to highlight in this report is that, um, as Mike was talking about, school nutrition workers, um, they have to do a lot of really technical work that most people don't realize in terms of um, not only following federal regulations, but also state and local level regulations. They have to understand not only have to how to safely work with food, um, but how to safely store food, how to deal with students who have allergies and other specific nutritional needs. Um, so there's a lot of different aspects of the job, let alone you know understanding how to relate with children of different ages and make them feel comfortable in a space um, in school where, you know, they need to feel comfortable in order to, you know, want to to eat food. So there's a lot of different aspects of the job that I think um, are sometimes not fully valued. Um, And when we look at how much um, school nutrition workers make, um, so like looking at like national census data, um, people take a really big hit um, to work in K-12 schools versus um, other institutional kind of food service environments. So retirement and assisted living, as well as like hospital settings, they're doing in a lot of ways, similar kinds of work. Um, They might not even have to be doing the customer service interactive piece, but they're doing similar kinds of preparation work, similar kinds of work in terms of 
dietetic knowledge, but they're making several dollars more per hour on average. And those positions are a lot more likely to be full time and year round. So I think, um, you know, to me, it really like always brings up this question of, wow, like what remarkable people we have working in our school nutrition programs who are are willing to kind of take that economic hit um, themselves to do this important work of feeding our children. And we need to stop asking people to make that kind of economic sacrifice. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Dr. Jennifer Gaddis from UW-Madison and Mike Gasper, Director of School Nutrition for the Holman School District in Holman, Wisconsin, about school nutrition programs and the new report they were both involved in creating Hungry for Good Jobs, the State of the School Nutrition Workforce in Wisconsin. We'd love to have you join our conversation. Give us a call if you have a question for my guests or a a story or comment to make about school nutrition programs, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, and uh, have a chance to talk about this important issue with two very knowledgeable folks. I'm going to turn back to you, Mike. Um, There were a couple of uh, stats and figures in the report that really stood out to me. One was that one in four schools offer poverty level starting wages. And another was a striking graph that showed how um, school nutrition workers are rent burdened around the state. And many of them have to spend you know, really high percentages of their income uh, just to have a place to live. Um, I'd love to have you give us a little bit of on the ground sense, Mike, of what you see the impacts of uh, low wages are on people that you work with there in Holman. But also you could put it in a national context. Is Wisconsin unique in that regard? Um, I'll answer your last question first. No, we're not unique in that regard. I mean, I think this is really a national issue um, that you're going to see just about every state you go to. Um, You know, as far as... um, I think it helps to understand where school nutrition came from. When it was created, um, we had a lot of um, mothers that were stay-at-home moms that wanted something to do while their kid was in school. And I think that kind of explains why it's mostly women or has been mostly women and why the wage really wasn't all that important to them. It was more about getting out, being in school with their uh, kids. But nowadays, um, that demographic has really changed. We're, you know, we have a lot more single parents um, in our society than we did back then. We have a lot of people that are working two and three jobs um, just to make it through, um, you know. But they do this work because um, they realize it's important. So I think once you're in school nutrition, you realize – the impact you can make on kids. You know, I, I tell my people all the time, uh, they may not remember their first grade teacher 30 years from now, but you're the one person they saw every day you were in that school. You know, uh, from kindergarten all the way to fifth grade, they saw you every day. They're going to remember you 30 years down the road. And um, so it's such an impactful uh, profession that um, truly does not get the uh, um, acknowledgement it should get and the importance um, that we have in the school district. And, and you know, with within the food that we serve, there's a lot of education that comes along with that as well, teaching kids how to eat correctly, um, you know, how to follow uh, a good diet, um, how to eat your vegetables, your fruits, those things. Um, 
And that's often overlooked as well as far as the importance to the education of these children. And, and we've all seen the hangry commercials on TV. Um, it's a real thing. If you're, if you're hungry, you're not going to um, be able to focus on what you should be focused on. So, again, I, I think school nutrition is one of the most important things um, we can do to set up a kid for a successful education, a successful future. And Mike, what does a typical day there look like? Take us into your school kitchens there in Holman and, and some of the challenges, and you just mentioned some of the great rewards, but what are some of the challenges highlighted in this report that you see? Well, you know, I think um, probably the biggest challenge that most school directors face is turnover. Um, because we are the lowest wage department in most school districts, um, we're kind of somewhat seen as a stepping stone. So we'll have people join us and then they'll find out the custodian pays a dollar or two more an hour. And as soon as the job comes open, they're gone. You know, so we've just spent three weeks training somebody and all the, the investment in that person only to lose that person, um, which makes it very difficult to have any sort of continuity within your program uh, to do those things that Jennifer talked about as far as scratch cooking, um, higher quality uh, food products, those kinds of things are much more difficult when you have either a, a new staff or no staff at all, which sometimes does occur. To, uh, my, uh, I woke up today, I was three people short in my district, um, you know, and that's six schools. So half my schools were down one person. So, uh, and I don't think that's unusual anymore, unfortunately, in, in our state and in our nation. And then when that happens, what do you have to do to scramble to put food on the table? If you're lucky enough to have a good substitute list, you, you make some phone calls. Uh, when that list gets exhausted, you get very creative as far as uh, moving some people around. Or uh, this morning I was actually a cashier at breakfast at one of our elementary schools, which I absolutely love because there's nothing better than working directly with the kids. Um, but again, it takes time away from what I'm supposed to be doing as well. So um, it's not a great solution by any stretch. So what you're getting at, Mike, brings us into what the report, uh, it's the Hungry for Good Jobs report, refers to as hidden costs of the prevailing model. And I'll turn it back to you, Jennifer, to talk about what some of those hidden costs are of this low-wage, part-time, seasonal employment uh, model are for school nutrition workers. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think that... Um, you know, certainly at the level of hourly employees, some of the hidden costs are that um, when people can't afford to stay in the job for a long-term period of time, some of the things that Mike talked about, about the importance of the relationship between school nutrition workers and the kids that they feed just doesn't have time to develop. Or if it does develop, it gets taken away and then a new person is in. And so from kind of a public health standpoint, um, one of the things that I think research shows really clearly is that students are more, well, just children in general, are more willing to try new foods um, if they have a positive relationship with the person who's feeding them. So schools are a really important place um, to be introducing kids to healthy foods and a lot of times to be introducing them to a wider variety of things that they might be getting at home, especially children who are coming from more challenging economic circumstances. Um, you know, sometimes people just can't afford to, you know, be buying a lot of different um, fruits and vegetables and other kinds of things if they don't know for sure that their child is going to eat those things. So schools, I think, are this really 
really important place for students from all backgrounds to have access to a wide range of healthy foods. And it's really important um, when you're asking kids to try things that they might be unfamiliar with um, for them to feel like they're in a safe space and to feel like, oh, you know, I, I, I like this person. They're not going to lead me astray. Or if they do, it's okay. I still like them. So we, we see a lot of times um, that kids who have really good relationships with the workers who feed them are a lot more willing to not only try different fruits and vegetables, but also to try like new recipes that maybe like aren't things that they would have encountered like on a kid's menu at a restaurant or something like that. So I think um, that's certainly important from like the nutritional standpoint, um, but also, you know, there's been a lot of conversations about mental health in schools and also about school climate. So I think um, as Mike alluded to earlier, cafeterias and the people who work in them can be a really important space of not only physical, but also emotional um, nourishment for kids. And so um, making sure that people can afford to stay in those jobs. And I've seen um, in instances um, throughout my research in different parts of the country, people who have worked in the same um, school kitchen or cafeteria for 20, 30 years. And then, you know, they not only know the kids that they're feeding, but they might know the parents of that kid or other like, you know, family relations. Um, and they might know a lot of the people People in the neighborhood. So um, that kind of ability to really understand kind of the social world of the child and to be a non-threatening presence because school nutrition workers aren't grading the kids. They're giving them something, right, that they, they need um, to fuel their day. So it's just, it's a really important and special kind of relationship, but that really can't be formed or sustained as easily if, um, you know, workers are short-staffed and having to focus on the bare bones. Um, you know, if they have one or two people who are out that day, or if, you know, they don't have all of the positions filled, they may not have time to be um, making these important connections with kids or even with their broader community. So I think that that's one piece of it. Um, I also think, um, and I'm sure Mike can speak to this more, that um, there are a number of things that are happening, I think, across the country that excite people about school nutrition programs. So mainly, um, trying to do more scratch cooking instead of heat and serve foods and doing more culturally relevant meals and farm to school or local sourcing um, and even nutrition education alongside that. All of those things are really wonderful and they're the way I think to build um, a really fantastic school nutrition program, but they require staffing to do so. So a lot of times if schools um, are you know shorter on staff, what that means is that you're outsourcing a lot more of the work of cooking to manufacturers who can prepare things and who can make sure that they're compliant with federal regulations and prepackage them and then you're distributing those things. And on the one hand, um, you know those things might not be, as healthy um, for students because it can be harder to control um, always what goes into um, packaged foods. It's easier when you're scratch cooking to control exactly what the ingredients are. But also um, you're really, um, you're giving away a lot of economic resources to um, companies that are outside of your local community instead of keeping those dollars in your community supporting high quality jobs. So I, I think of it as not only something that impacts students and impacts families who then might choose not to participate in the school meal program, who are then investing more of their own time and money and packing lunches from home, but also something that does impact communities more broadly in terms of their ability to source local food from farmers and their ability to supply good quality middle-class jobs to people in their 
communities. And this is something that I think um, impacts people not only in urban areas like Madison, where Douglas, you and I are, but also like in rural parts of the state and small towns, like, you know, every, every place <laughs> in the state has a school, right? So this is an issue that I think um, should be of interest to everyone across the state in terms of not only how it could really benefit um, kids, but also our local economic development and communities across the state. That's Dr. Jennifer Gaddis, Associate Professor at UW-Madison, talking about a new report called Hungry for Good Jobs, the State of the School Nutrition Workforce in Wisconsin. And also joining me today here on A Public Affair is Mike Gasper, Director of School Nutrition for the Holman School District in Holman, Wisconsin, and member of the Board of Directors of the National School Nutrition Association. We'd love to have you give us a call to join the conversation if you have a question about the state of school nutrition, school meals here in Wisconsin or across the country, or you'd like to share a comment or an experience. You can give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, Mike, uh, you have an inspiring story of one of those there in Holman, one of those initiatives that Jennifer was just talking about that people get excited about when we talk about school nutrition, farm to table and local sourcing. Tell us about your school apple orchard there in Holman. You bet. Well, you know, four years ago, we, we got a, uh, uh, a message from an anonymous donor that they had 80 um, apple trees that they wanted to donate to our district. So I worked together with our egg teacher at the time, Roger King. Um, and we uh, devised a plan to build a deer fence. Um, we have a wonderful hill um, behind one of our elementary schools at Southern Facing, so it's perfect for an orchard. So um, he brought his students up there. They built a fantastic deer fence. And then um, we brought up kids from the elementary school that the property is on. And uh, they came up, and we worked with them on planting the trees. Um, and since then, they've had various ag students come up there and help prune the trees and, and you know, work the grounds a little bit. Um, but it usually takes three to four years before you actually get a harvest out of apple trees. Um, that's actually going to happen on Wednesday of this week. So two days from now, um, we expect to get around five to $6,000 worth of apples um, out of our orchard uh, that's been student-run. Um, and we're actually having some of those same children that planted those trees four years ago when they were in uh, kindergarten, first grade, uh, are going to be back up there tomorrow on Wednesday, helping us harvest that along with some egg students from the high school. So um, very exciting. And that's the kind of thing that can happen when um, school nutrition programs work collaboratively um, with their science department, their egg department. You know, we also have a hydroponic operation in our, at our high school um, where they grow lettuce for our programs. We also have um, what's called a flex farm. It's an individual hydroponic unit in all of our schools that grow herbs that we use in our recipes. Um, in previous years, we've managed to raise chickens, pigs, cows um, that we've used in our program. Um, currently, we're buying from two local farms. Um, both pork and beef. So, you know, there's a lot that can happen in your school program if it's funded correctly and you have support um, from your administration. Uh, so it's really important, I think, to people to understand the cost of these things. And, you know, right now we're getting some great national grants uh, for local food purchasing. The problem is those things are one-time deals. You know, so it helps. You get $20,000, you spend it on local purchases. But that doesn't really help much for next year. 
you know, and, and that's why the, um, you know, funding of school nutrition programs is so important. Um, the reimbursement rates that we're getting right now are actually less than they were last year. Um, and that's concerning going forward because, again, just um, sorry, Mike, tell book, us a little bit about what you mean by reimbursement rates. Yeah, I'm sorry. Every every school lunch that we serve, as long as we serve the necessary components, is reimbursed by the government, including paid lunches. Now, a lot of people think that, well, I paid for my kids' lunch. Well, you didn't actually pay for all of it because we do get a reimbursement for every single lunch that we serve. Um, and we get it at, at a certain rate. Um, uh, and when that, that's really probably the main source of funding for most school nutrition programs. You know, granted, there's some more revenue that occurs from all the card sales, catering sales that you might have, um, outside programs you might serve. Um, but not every district has those either. So, um, again, it's the main source of, of funding. You know, those five components, we have to serve a fruit, we have to serve a vegetable, we have to serve a, a meat or a meat alternative, otherwise known as a protein, um, a grain, and then uh, fluid milk. Uh, so, again, uh, it's very specific. We have to meet certain guidelines as far as calories, sodium, fat, um, there's a lot that goes into this. And, and again, when it's not funded correctly, it can really cause other issues where, you know, you're forced to not pay as much as you would for labor, perhaps. And then that causes you to have to buy more convenience type items because you don't have um, the skill level necessary to, to do scratch cooking, um, which is why this, uh, this report, I believe, is, is so very important, um, not only here in Wisconsin, but really nationwide. Yeah, um, this is the best state-level data you had mentioned earlier, Jennifer, that we have in the country. So it seems very significant that, you know, as a baseline to, to have a very informed conversation about how to improve these programs, um, we have a great basis for that here in Wisconsin. Thanks to both of you and all the other folks involved in this report. So we've been talking about the obstacles that the report highlights to doing some of the wonderful things you just described, Michael. Uh, before we move into maybe the national picture and, and the effect of the removal of free lunches, tell us about how you overcame some of those obstacles there in Holman, Mike. Um, what, what allowed you, you mentioned grants and a donation, but that still it's just the baseline, right? The funding itself. What allowed you to create that apple orchard and all that other local sourcing and hydroponics that, that you mentioned? Uh, you know, first, I want to credit my staff. I, I think the staff that I have on hand here is is definitely unique. Um, they're very hardworking, very caring individuals willing to do whatever it takes to get our kids fed here in Holman. Um, when COVID hit, we found out um, I believe it was late on a Friday that we were not going to have school on Monday, and we were there on Saturday meeting um, to decide how we were going to feed these kids. You know, they they just very giving on their time. So that that's one component, um, and I believe there's there's districts like that across the state with those kinds of people. Um, the rest of it's a lot of hard work, to be real honest with you. You know, seeking out funding opportunities, grants, those kinds of things that you can find that will help fund your program. Um, we also feed a great deal of uh, the County of La Crosse. Uh, senior dining program, everything except the city of La Crosse pretty much, um, which brings extra revenue into our program um, that we can turn around and invest into it. Um, and again, not every district has that opportunity. Um, we also feed a, a parochial school uh, to bring in extra revenue and a uh, YMCA daycare. So we've, we've worked pretty hard to establish a good uh, baseline of revenue so we can invest back into our program. Um, 
but I just feel it's, I think most programs want to do these things, but most programs don't have uh, the, the um, necessary funds behind it to do those things. So funding is, it's obviously the, the big issue. Um, Jennifer's so. pointing out here in our chat as well that you have 12 month employment, Mike, and that a lot of school nutrition directors are not employed year round. How do you see that as making an impact? Um, I think it's huge. You know, first of all, again, we spend most of the summer working on our menus for the following year, um, making sure we have to certify every menu, which means uh, we have to have a standardized recipe. We have to know the ingredients that go in there. We have to get the nutritional profile of every ingredient that goes into those recipes. Uh, Then we have to take that and put it all together as far as our menu goes to make sure we're meeting the USDA requirements. Um, It's... uh, really kind of mind-boggling when you think about all the information that gets dumped into these spreadsheets and then we have to come out on the other side either meeting it or we have to go back to the drawing board um takes an awful lot of time in the summer to do that i know directors that are nine-month employees you know they walk out of here two days after school ends and if they're lucky they get paid to come back a, a week before school starts which is i i don't know how you could possibly prepare a program to run correctly with that kind of a situation um, there's not enough time. And unfortunately, most of those directors, that's not what they actually do. They actually work most of the summer, but they just don't get paid. Um, and, and that's not right either. You know, I think that just leads to burnout, um, negativity. Um, you know, there, there's so much bad that comes from expecting someone to do that or, or setting them up to have to do that. So um, I think that would be a huge step in the right direction if they could make all directors 12-month employees because – there's plenty to do. Um, I never have enough time in the summer. <laughs> You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Mike Gasper, Director of School Nutrition for the Holman School District in Holman, Wisconsin, and member of the Board of Directors of the National School Nutrition Association. Also joining me is Dr. Jennifer Gaddis, Associate Professor of the Department of Civil Society and Community Studies at UW-Madison. And we are talking about school nutrition as students go back to school this fall and the importance of school nutrition and in particular a new report that both of my guests have been involved in, Hungry for Good Jobs, the State of the School Nutrition Workforce in Wisconsin. There's still time for you to give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, to join the conversation with a question or a story about school nutrition. So I think we'll start zooming out here a little bit to the big picture. And Jennifer, you're a national advocate for federally funded school meals. What would the impacts of providing free meals for all students be? What did we learn from that pandemic experience? We're now back at a point where we don't have that for everyone. And uh, what's happening to try to make that happen? Yeah, thanks, Douglas. So one thing I just want to make sure listeners understand is that um, even if schools aren't doing anything particularly special, like what Mike described as like all the amazing efforts in Holman, um, lunches consumed from school are actually the most nutritious meals students eat. So the U.S. Department of, of Agriculture has done really large scale national um, studies to look at this. And they found um, there's something called the Healthy Eating Index, which uh, basically measures how in line um, what people are actually consuming with the dietary guidelines for Americans. So does it match like essentially what the government like thinks we should be eating for nutrition. And that's a scale of zero to 100. So 
school lunches um, on average um, are at um, an 80 and lunches from home or other places are at a 65 on this 100 point scale. So what that means is that even if you're just kind of average run of the mill school lunch program, um, you're actually 15% um, more nutritious, like more in line with these like um, national guidelines for optimal health um, than what people might be packing from home or getting from a la carte lines or from other places if um, maybe they're high school and have open campus. So um, I think that that just tells us that um, school meals, even as the current system exists, is actually the most nutritious source of food um, that kids would be accessing during the school day. So um, having more students able to eat school meals is important. And um, I think another thing is that um, the free and reduced and paid categories that we were talking about earlier, you actually have to be pretty low income um, in order to qualify for free or reduced meals. So there are so many households um, in Wisconsin and nationally that are economically struggling but don't qualify for free or reduced meals. And as Mike mentioned, um, all school meals are subsidized to some extent by the federal government, but there's a really big difference between paying 40 cents for a lunch, which is how much the reduced price meal is, and paying maybe, you know, $3 um, or more. And I say or more because um, local school boards, um, so it's like a local decision, um, how much you want to charge um, for the paid meal. So um, I think that there are so many people who really benefited economically from accessing free school breakfasts and lunches during the pandemic who, you know, now when we're in this alternative model, they take a look and even if they feel like um, their kids would be getting better nutrition and it would be more convenient for them to have their, their kids eat school breakfast and lunch, they just can't afford the paid rate. And so what does that mean? Maybe that their kids are not getting as high quality of food at school um, and also that they're, you know, they're struggling even more economically because that's a cost to their own individual household versus a shared public cost that we're all kind of viewing as a collective investment in the future of, you know, the next generation. So I think that um, just looking at it from like a, a children and families perspective, um, that's one of the reasons why for me, free school meals um, for all is really important. But I think there's other um, things too, if we think of it as um, a big public program, which it is, it's one of the largest um, like social welfare programs related to food and nutrition in the country. Um, we have to think about it as not actually being particularly economically efficient. Um, so when you have to do all of this means testing, so um, collecting all this paperwork, um, you're not only spending a lot of time um, doing administrative work, but you're also probably missing a lot of people who aren't applying for free and reduced meals because um, they don't necessarily think they qualify or maybe um, they you know, don't speak English fluently or a newer immigrant to the country and are concerned about filling out the paperwork or it's not um, you know, uh, in a language that is accept accessible to them. So there's a lot of reasons why people um, might not be getting access to these meals who should. Um, but then I think there's also... Um, you know, these concerns about stigma um, and shame that prevent families who maybe think they would qualify from um, even applying because they don't want to feel like they're taking a handout from the government. So I think that there's a lot of things um, kind of wrapped up um, 
in school meals and people sometimes moralizing um, in different ways about um, who should have access to things versus who shouldn't, when this really should be, um, I think, a public program that we view as just part of the educational school day. We don't treat any other part of school the same way. <laughs> we don't do this kind of means testing for busing. We don't do it for access to English class or math class. We literally just do it around food. And so I think that um, that's pretty weird. And food is a really important thing, you know, for, for kids' development. Um, and I think that um, we want to make sure that nobody's concerned about stigma or worried about where their next meal is going to come from when they're supposed to be concentrating on learning. So I think that um, for all those reasons, um, but also just the fact that we want to have like an economically efficient program, a universal program that isn't means tested is certainly more economically efficient. And we also know from looking at other kinds of public programs like Social Security, for example, that um, programs that are universal and not means tested tend to be much more politically popular and stand the test of time um, because everyone kind of sees how they benefit from it. Um, so I think that there's reasons too, um, you know, in terms of a lot of people people having opted out of this program. So if we look at who like participates um, mostly in school meals, it is um, disproportionately people who qualify for free and reduced meals. So there's a lot of families who technically are eligible for um, the school meal program for more middle class and upper middle class families who are choosing not to participate. Well, when people opt out of the program, it's sort of like you know, easy to just kind of forget about it and to not care about it or advocate for it. And so I think that um, for me also, one of the reasons why universal school meals um, is important is that I think it would bring a lot of voices to the table of people who maybe have some like political and economic clout who would feel a little bit more of a personal vested interest in working to get more federal and state resources and to develop a lot of the innovations that Mike is talking about locally that would benefit not only their own children, but all the children in their community. And to me, that's a really important goal. I, I want to add to what Jennifer said, too. I mean, I don't think there's anything more important than feeding our future and giving each kid, every kid, um, putting them on a level playing field to, to get a great education and hopefully set themselves up for the future. And I think when we don't do that, we're just going to continue the cycle of poverty. And I, I think so many people miss that point in this whole thing. I mean, it really does make a difference. Sometimes the school meals, the two meals they might get if they eat breakfast and lunch, are the only meals those kids get all day. Um, so it is so important. And, and um, I don't think you can look at it just as your own situation. You know, everybody's situation is different. we got to look at it as a community as a nation and and why is this really so important that this is a shared investment in our shared future in other words to see yes. school meals that way yeah absolutely so jennifer you're involved in in trying to make this happen uh, tell us about the healthy school meals for all initiative in wisconsin and uh, your efforts to try to expand uh free school meals for all here in wisconsin and around the country yeah, sure. And Mike, if you want to chime in as well, uh, Mike and I are both involved in Great. this effort. And um, I would say um, what happened here was um, two of our um, more, um, I think, engaged in this issue, uh, elected officials, Francesca Hong and Christina Shelton, introduced a bill. Um, it didn't make it um, 
to the point of even discussion. Um, and so we felt like we needed to do a lot more organizing work to really build out our coalition so that we could get even, um, you know, just a, a real public discussion around um, the value of free school meals. And in the meantime, um, several states around us, um, Michigan and Minnesota, have um, already passed and enacted free school meals for all. Um, and there are um, other states that have been doing it for several years, like California and Maine. So, you know, we see this as something that is gaining momentum and that um, some states have um, really decided um, to make a priority. And here in Wisconsin, um, Last spring, um, Governor Evers did include uh, free school breakfast and lunch for all students in the biennial state budget, as well as um, a 10 cent um, per meal reimbursement incentive um, that would basically encourage schools to source more food locally and also some additional funding for school breakfast. So those were things that Mike and I and several others in the coalition went and testified in support of at the budget hearings. <laughs> we tried to really galvanize um, our base of support, like I mentioned, there's over 80 different um, organizations that are involved in this coalition to contact their elected officials and really encourage um, you know, the um, Joint Finance Committee to keep these measures in the budget. Unfortunately, they were removed on day one of the um, Joint Finance Committee's work on crafting a new budget. So now we're back at this point of really seeing um, the introduction of a Healthy School Meals for All bill um, as our next step um, in terms of the legislative pathway, but um, doing as much as we can in terms of just real organizing and community building around this issue to um, not only educate people about why it's important, but also um, to help give people some um, actionable strategies for how they can have their voices heard on the matter. Uh, Mike, is there anything you wanted to add? You did a great job describing it. You know, I, I, again, I think it really is a matter of funding public education, which has not been a priority of the Joint Finance Committee for a number of years. I think this was the first year in over um, 12, 13 years that they actually gave an increase in the per people funding. Uh, there was actually a comment from one of the Joint Finance Committee members uh, that said, why would we support free breakfast for all when the superintendents don't even support it? And it was actually kind of a false statement because the superintendents um, we're really faced with a, a decision. Do they support free breakfast and lunch or do they support higher per pupil spending? Because they knew they weren't going to get both. Um, and I think that's something we need to look at as a state where we, we need to invest in our future. Um, you know, and, and when we don't do that, we're really failing all of us. The Hungry for Good Jobs report outlines a number of action strategies. Obviously, keeping the momentum going for free meals for all is one of them. But tell us a little bit more about those action strategies for growing Wisconsin's food economy with good jobs, as the report describes. Um, what are they and, and what are some of the prospects for making them happen? If this bill doesn't get passed, what, what else can we be working on in the meantime? Uh, either one of you want to jump in there? Jennifer? <laughs> Sure. Yeah, I think that um, the way we tried to think about it was things that we thought could happen at the programmatic level. So meaning individual school districts like what Mike um, leads in Holman mm -hmm. um, policies, as well as broader partnerships. So certainly um, 
individual school districts may have some ability to increase the starting wage and also provide more um, longevity bonuses to workers who stay there for an extended period of time. Um, we do see um, definitely um, a wage gap between, um, as I mentioned earlier, school nutrition workers and other um, education support staff like custodial workers. So I think um, making sure that um, we're looking at those things um, really critically, um, I think is very important and eliminating those kinds of wage gaps. Um, also providing bonuses linked to professional development milestones and credentials um, that staff might be obtaining, um, increasing full-time and year-round employment. Um, I think that those things um, are really important and um, can also help schools um, offer um, more comprehensive um, nutritional services to children. Um, so for example, um, some schools don't necessarily participate in all of the available child and adult um, nutrition programs that they could be um, potentially using their employees to support. So I think that there's this um, sort of mutually reinforcing thing of um, having employees maybe in um, uh, full, full year round positions, but then also having more robust um, summer programs and using your school nutrition program, maybe creatively to do some contracting for other kinds of um, meal services through the USDA as well. Um, and I think in terms of policies, um, it would be really helpful to have minimum wage and benefit standards for school nutrition programs. Um, I would love to see um, at the federal level um, uh, some sort of earmark in um, those reimbursement dollars that Mike talked about, some sort of earmark that is specifically for um, wages and um, benefits. One thing that I think is really challenging, um, nationally speaking, is that um, schools are actually reimbursed the same amount. Um, so Alaska and Hawaii get a little bit more, but anywhere in the 48 contiguous states, you get the same um, reimbursement amount. So just to make it easy, this isn't the exact amount, but say it's $4. Um, so you have $4 to spend in Holman, Wisconsin. You have $4 to spend in San Francisco, California. <laughs> and like those are really, really different labor markets. And so that's a real challenge that um, those things um, aren't uh, really adjusted for at all. So I think that those are some real issues. Um, and also just supporting workers' rights to organize collectively because um, we definitely see teachers' unions um, having much higher density than support workers' unions as well. Thanks, Jennifer. There's a lot there to work on, a lot to think about. And thank you both, first of all, for your amazing work in this really important, crucial area that I think we don't hear enough about um, in public conversations about education. So thanks for that. And thank you for joining me today. I've been talking with two guests here on A Public Affair who have shed so much light on all that it takes to provide students with nutritious meals day in and day out. Dr. Jennifer Gaddis is an associate professor in the Department of Civil Society and Community Studies at UW-Madison. Thanks for coming on A Public Affair again, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me. And Mike Gasper is director of school nutrition for the Holman School District and was twice president of the School Nutrition Association of Wisconsin. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Uh, absolutely. My pleasure. And, and, and real quick, I just want to say to people listening, if you get a chance, visit your school nutrition program. I'll guarantee it is not what you remember. Uh, it's not your uh, father's school nutrition program anymore. It's way different. Uh, you're going to see some really cool things. That's great. Um, I hope people take advantage of that uh, invitation out there. 
I am your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Dave, news director, Shali Pittman, and producer, Jade Isiri Ramos. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today here on A Public Affair at WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and support it. Don't take no prisoners if you can't afford to feed none. Don't start no fights if you cannot predict the outcome. Don't make donations where you cannot get your dough back. The apathetic bullshit, send them all your Prozac. I will not climb into your telephone tree, and hell no, you cannot put me on hold.